you have God's Word with you, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. We'll be focusing on verses 1 through 4, but for the sake of context, I'll be reading all the way through verse 11 in in preparation for next week. Again, it's Hebrews chapter 5. Now, while you're turning there, I thought it would be good for us to quickly revisit the general theme of Hebrews. Now, if you can recall with me, the book of Hebrews was written to first century Christian Jews who were being crushed underneath the weight of persecution. This epistle was written to men and women who were on the brink of apostasy, trying to find and grab really onto any sort of reason to defer back into Judaism, to find safety by abandoning Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews, in addressing these persecuted saints, we find that rather than giving to them mere words of practicality or application of things that they should try to do or ought to do, we find that he gives to them doctrine. In the midst of all the chaos and fear, in the midst of all the death and grieving and oppression, the writer of Hebrews understood that the great remedy that would enable and empower and restore the discouraged saints to persevere in the faith was doctrine. Specifically, the doctrine of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, which is the very theme of this letter. That Jesus is not only superior, but that He's altogether sufficient. That he's not only a prophet, but he's the true and final word of God incarnate, chapter 1. That he's supreme over all the angels, chapter 2. That he's the true and better Moses, chapter 3. That he's the greater and better Joshua, chapter 4. And as we'll begin to study today, beginning in chapter 5, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the true and better Aaron. That he's not only a priest, but that he is himself the great high priest. Now that being said, if you can look down with me to our text, let's read this together. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Hear now the living and inerrant word of God. Verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 5. So as also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death and was heard because of His godly fear. Though He was a son, yet He learned obedience by the things which He suffered. And having been perfected, He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, called by God as High Priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become so dull of hearing. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O Lord, we come to your word knowing with great and full surety that your word is alive, active, effective and powerful, able to do and to accomplish mighty things. And so we ask that as we come to Your Word and as Your Word goes forth, that for those who have yet to know You in this room, that Your Word would reveal and prove Your superior value. That lost souls would come to the One who we proclaim as the great High Priest, Jesus that they would breathe after His holiness. And as for those of us who are already in Christ, we pray that by the Spirit, You would strengthen us, renew us, and embolden us through Your Word so that we may be more thankful for Your mercies, more humble under Your correction, the more zealous for your service, ready to be used by you in any given moment for your glory and honor. We pray all this in the name that's above every other name, Christ Jesus. Amen. One of the most common questions that I hear and am often asked is, why did God take so long to send Jesus? If we, and we do believe this here at this church, if God's plan of salvation for the elect was established in eternity past, before the foundations of the world, before the beginning of time, 2 Timothy 1.9, why wait thousands of years? Why go through thousands upon thousands of years of Old Testament history? And perhaps you've thought this very thing for yourselves. Adam falls on Monday, why not send Jesus Tuesday? Why not cut out all the unbelief, all the rebellion, all the heartache, all the disobedience, all the faithlessness? Why not cut out all the sin? No worldwide flood, no Tower of Babel, no bondage in Egypt, and so on and so on. So again, why? Why wait? Now, it would be a grave mistake on our part to believe that it was because God somehow lost control of His own creation. Because Scripture is absolutely clear here in that not only did God create all things, but as we read in Hebrews 11.3, that it is by faith that we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. We also recognize that it is God, it is He who upholds all things by the word of His power, Hebrews 
This to say that the God who created all things is the one who at this very moment still upholds and sustains all things. All things are in His hands and all things are in His sovereign control. He has total dominion over all creation, all events, all history, and all time. And so as we go back to the question of why, why wait for Jesus? One of the reasons why, if I were to answer this, for why God didn't just simply send Jesus right away after the fall was because there had to be a context for salvation. There had to be categories in order for us to fully understand and comprehend God's plan of redemption. One theologian helpfully writes for us, he says, God was guiding the history of Israel as a backdrop to help make sense of the coming of Jesus. In other words, God chose to do it in this way, specifically in this way, through a storyline of history, through the thousands and thousands of years of Old Testament history and 2,000 years of Israelite history to serve as a backdrop to the advent, to the coming of Christ. It provides for us the necessary context and the categories with which we need to correctly explain and understand who this Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So that as we move along throughout the Old Testament storyline, and as we see this unveiling of Jesus, we're able to look to Him and to point to Him and say, that's the one. That's the Messiah. That's the Christos. That's the one whom we've been waiting for. And so the lesson stands true for us tonight as we look to Hebrews 5 and the category and the qualifications of a high priest. Because it's only in the right understanding of this Old Testament office that then allows for us to correctly understand who this Jesus really is and what he came to do. What he accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. Now, with all that said, Hebrews chapter 5 does two things for us in this regard. The first thing that it does is that it shows us that Jesus meets all the qualifications required of a high priest. And the reason for why this is so critical and necessary in the flow of this epistle is because of what we studied last week. If you remember in verse 14 of chapter 4, we read, and if you want to look down with me, we read these words in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of 
need, meaning the whole crux of Hebrews up until this very point comes down left, right, and center to the fact that Jesus stands as the faithful, merciful, sympathetic, high priest. The writer of Hebrews is communicating to his readers with us by saying, don't neglect so great a salvation in Jesus. Stand firm in Jesus. Take hold of Jesus. Take hold of the One who is the great High Priest. Now as a first century Christian Jew, if we were to read this very passage, the very first thing that would have come flooding into your mind is the question of, How do we even know that Jesus is a priest? How can we be so sure that this Jesus guy is qualified to be the high priest? I mean, this isn't something that you just go around and proclaim without any kind of verification or any kind of proof. Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? And so what the writer of Hebrews demonstrates here in this chapter, in chapter 5, is that not only does Jesus meet all the requirements of a high priest, which we'll be focusing on tonight, but secondly, that Jesus' priesthood is actually far greater and far superior, infinitely superior to that of Aaron's. Now in hearing this, this might not sound like a big deal to us in our 21st century way of thinking because we're so disconnected from the priesthood both culturally and historically. But to every first century Jew, this was massive. This was significant. Especially to the Jewish Christians who would hear and respond to the Gospel of Christ. These Jewish Christians who would hear this would no doubt struggle by still having something deep down within their hearts that kept drawing them to want to go back to what was familiar, to those men who they grew up around since childhood, the priest who wore the ephods, the priest who wore the breastplates, the priest who represented them and mediated on their behalf during the holidays. And so again, the writer of Hebrews demonstrates to them and really to all of us tonight that not only does Jesus fulfill all the qualifications of a high priest, but better yet, that Jesus' priesthood is far greater, ever truer, and infinitely superior than any other. That He's not just a high priest, but He's the divine, the superior great High priest. Now let's look down together again at verse 1. We read here, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. What we find here in verses 1 through 4 are a total of four qualifications of a high priest, which I'll list out for you one by one as we make our way through the text. But the very first qualification that we find here is that the high priest is to be taken from among men. Now the priesthood was a 
consecrated class of people who are designated to perform acts of worship on behalf of the people that they serve. And it was this priesthood that stood absolutely critical in the daily life of Israel as a nation and as a people of worship, as we clearly even read today in Leviticus chapter 9, and as we clearly see and read throughout all of Leviticus and Numbers. The priests were responsible to make known the will of God to the people of God. They were responsible to teach and to conduct appropriate worship according to what God had revealed through His Word or through His law. And at the very heart of all of these responsibilities, we find that at the heart of the responsibility of the priests, they were to mediate. They were the mediators between God and man. And so there was, in a very real sense, woven into the very fabric of the nation of Israel, this understanding that if one wanted to go to God, then one would need to go through a priest. And among the priesthood stood the chief priest or the high priest who bore the ultimate responsibility for the ultimate sacrifice in making atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins, Leviticus chapter 16, on the day of atonement. So again, the first qualification that we find here in verse 1 is that the high priest is required, is mandated by God to be a man. Now, the idea that's presented here might at first seem insignificant or perhaps even strange or obvious, but I assure you that it holds profound implications. The requirement that we find here is that the one who is to represent a certain people is to have solidarity with the people, unity with the people that he's called to represent, that he's to identify himself with them. In other words, the priest must be human in order to represent other humans. Why? Because it's man, it's man who stands condemned before God in sin. So it's man who must pay for what is owing to God for sins. Commentator Philip Hughes helpfully writes that the high priest was something far more than a liturgical specialist. His office was concerned above all with the radical problem of human sinfulness and the need of the people for reconciliation with God. And so these priests, yes, they were mediators. Yes, they were representatives for men before God. But at the very heart of this office, God ordained the priesthood to bring sinful humanity back into fellowship with God. And now moving from the lesser to the greater in what seems so insignificant in the humanity of the priesthood goes on to highlight the overwhelming significance of the humanity of Christ Jesus, does it not? It's just as we studied back in Hebrews 2, if you weren't here with us for those studies, I encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. But we read in verse 10 of chapter 2 of the necessity of Christ, the Son of God. 
the necessity, the, the fittingness of why the Son of God had to come in the form of humanity, to live in the midst of humanity, to die as a man for the sins of humanity, on why it was necessary that the Son of God would become the Son of Man. Why, in verse 17 of chapter 2, why He had to be made in all things and in all ways like His brethren so that He might be for us a merciful, faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of His people which all go to serve and really to emphasize the sheer magnificence of this first qualification. That it's only a human priest who can appropriately represent and identify himself with humanity and to appropriately make atonement for sins. John Calvin writes, and he puts it in this way, he says, it was necessary for Christ to become a real man, for we are very far from God. We stand in a matter before Him in the person of our priest, Jesus, which could not be were He not one of us. Hence, that the Son of God has a nature in common with us does not diminish His dignity, but commends it the more to us, for He is fitted and reconciled to reconcile us to God because He is man. Now, for those of you who ever wondered why, this is exactly the reason why no angel could have ever served as our mediator. It's because angels don't serve or don't have any solidarity nor unity with humanity. And this is the reason for why Jesus can have been some sort of illusion as the Dostas claim. This is the reason for why Jesus couldn't have been some kind of spirit or some kind of ghost as the Gnostics believe. But the Christian faith has always confessed and have historically proclaimed that it was God who saw it fitting to send His begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the One who is truly God, truly man, to condescend in the form of lowly humanity to serve as the great High Priest on behalf of sinners. And it's this great news that we find here in this first qualification. The first condition of the high priest as we read here in verse 1, that he must be a man. The second qualification is that the high priest, he's appointed by God. It's done by appointment. We continue to read in verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. The Greek word that we find here used for the word appointed, kathistatai, is written in the passive voice. Meaning, and I want you to notice here, that the office of high priest isn't self-appointed. It's not self-appointed, but rather it's appointed by someone else, namely God. This isn't an office that's earned, but it's one that's given. It's not obtained by volunteering. It's not achieved by a democratic vote. There wasn't some kind of secret members meeting between the priest on who they thought would make a good high priest. There existed no such a thing. 
But we clearly see here in our text, in this very single word, that the one who was to fulfill this office was solely, divinely, and sovereignly appointed by God alone. Furthermore, we find here that this appointment had a very specific job description attached to it, that the high priest is appointed by God from among men for men, or as your translations might have, on behalf of men. And again, we find here this idea of representation. The high priest was appointed by God to represent, to mediate on behalf of other men. It was the human priest that was to represent the group of humanity, to represent the people of God. And if you look down again, to represent the people of God in what? In the things pertaining to God. The knowledge of God. The approaching and the coming to God. In the worship of God. All these things had to go through the mediation of a priest. I know that this is a lot of information. And there might be some of you at this moment sitting out there bored out of your minds, thinking, okay, that's great. But what does this, what does any of this have to do with me? I'm not a Jew. I'm not a first century Jew. I don't even see any, any priests around today. So what in the world, Mr. Man, what in the world does any of this have to do with me right now? To which I would say that it's within this second qualification in God's appointing of a high priest that we find two very profound truths for us all. First, who God is. And second, who we are. If you just stop for a second, if you just stop yourselves and allow this text to sink in, you'll come to quickly recognize that God not only appoints priests on behalf of the people that they're called to serve in the things pertaining to God, but that God desires to be known by His people. That though there exists this incomprehensible, this divine transcendence about God, the great depths and mysteries of God, we find here that God desires to make Himself known to His people. That though there exists this great chasm, this divide between God and man, the Lord in His infinite grace and mercy, He appoints men, He appoints mediators to, to close that gap so that we might know Him. To close that gap between the transcendent to the ordinary, to the finite, to the infinite, so that as we learned last week, so that we might come boldly, broken, yes, weak, yes, tempted, yes, unworthy, yes, sinful, yes, but that we might come boldly to the throne of grace, not on our own behalf, but how? Through our great high priest Jesus. And it's in here, this second qualification, that we not only find that God desires to be known by His people, not only do we find our inability to, in a, to approach God without a mediator, 
But we find here simply that there's something profoundly wrong with each and every one of us. That we've been plagued through and through by sin. That our sins have caused a certain level of dimness, a a callousness, a certain level of inability to properly see our Heavenly Father. And this is exactly what we've just sung and confessed together a few moments again as we've sung, Holy, Holy, Holy. Though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man his glory may not see. The chasm that exists between God and man is not just simply that God is holy and infinite and that man is sinful and finite, though that gap most certainly exists. But it's for us to also recognize that gap is exponentially and infinitely growing second by second. This to say that when the sinner looks for God, that when the unbeliever looks for God on his own, that God is utterly hidden from the sinner's view. And it's only in and through the mediation of a priest that the sinner can even begin to know God. That it's through a mediator that he's able to see God, believe in God, grow in relation to God, approach God, love God, and worship God. Friends, if there's any of you in here tonight who believe and think, well, I'll just come to God whenever I want. I can come to God whenever I want, however I want. What's the, I mean, what's the big deal? I'll just go to Him after I finish this. I just want to do this first. I just want to experience that first. I want to get all my affairs in order first and so on and so on, thinking that you can simply approach God in your own time and in your own way on your own behalf. If this is you, then friend, let me be the first to tell you that you have absolutely no idea what you're saying. You have absolutely no clue in where you stand in your own condemnation before God. It's here that we find in this second qualification, in the very existence of a priesthood appointed by God, the grace and mercy of God. That He has made a way for sinners to know Him now. To approach Him now. To worship Him now. And that through a mediator. We find here that it's God who sets the terms on how we're to come to Him. Not you. It's God alone who sets the terms and establishes the boundaries on how He's to be known. How He's to be worshipped. Not you. Just ask Aaron and Miriam. Ask the sons of Korah, thinking to themselves, why can't we just go to God like Moses? If he can do it, then I can do it. Just ask Nadab and Abihu, who thought to themselves that they can approach God whenever and however they so want it. Beloved, what we clearly see and find here in our text that is that it doesn't, It doesn't work like that. There's no arrangement to be found in God's Word that simply says we're all equal in the eyes of God. That we're all able to approach God whenever we want, however we want. Beloved, this kind of thinking is profoundly wrong. 
God has clearly communicated through His Word that it is through a priest. More specifically, through the great high priest, Jesus, that we're to come to Him. It never ceases to amaze me that despite God having so clearly communicated and laid out for us through His Word on how He desires to be known and approached in worship, that the common sentiment of today's American evangelicalism is that we can simply approach God in however the way we see fit. Now, if I can briefly go on a tangent here, this is the very reason for why we take God's worship so seriously here at Pillar Baptist Church. Because we clearly recognize that it's God, that it's the Lord that sets the standard. It's God who regulates how He desires to be worshipped. It's not about preferences at the end of the day. It's not about style. It's not about what's attractive. It's not about what's functional or convenient or what makes you feel good. But it's all about what God has mandated to His people through His Word on how He requires for us to know Him. How to approach Him. How to worship Him. Now, this is the reason for why I get so frustrated in flippant worship service. When presiders, they just make their way up onto the stage and they say, God, we invite you. We invite you to come into this place. Have you heard that? I have. They say, Lord, we welcome you to join us for our worship service. Friends, that's wrong. You do not invite God anywhere. He invites you. And I can go on and on about this, but I'll leave it at that. But the point of this, the point of the second qualification is that God has made a way for sinners. And He has done this by establishing the office of a high priest. And the reason or the purpose for why He did this, the reason for the necessity of a high priest, as we find here at the end of verse 1, is so that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices. For what? For sins. The prime reason for why we are in need of a priest is because we have a sin problem. We have a sin issue. The office of the high priest was concerned above all else with the radical problem of human sinfulness and the need for sinners to be reconciled to God. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you would know and quickly recognize, just as we've learned in the second qualification, that not just anyone was qualified to be a priest, but it was solely by God's appointment. In other words, it's not possible for someone to be their own priest. And we see this to be true the fact in the failed attempts of king saul and king Uzziah, if you remember who offered up their own sacrifice to the displeasure of god and really ultimately to their own condemnation to their judgment and it's to god alone who rightly reserves for himself the authority to lay down the order and manner of its administration that it's to God alone who ordains what is right according to His own good pleasure. And in this case, that offerings and sacrifices of sins be made through the high priest. Which means that at the end of the day, 
It's not merely about offering sacrifices as much as it is about the means and the mode in which these offerings are made. And just as it's to God alone who appoints the high priest to offer up these sacrifices, friends, it was to God alone who appointed His own beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be the great high priest, to offer Himself up, to be the perfect and final gift and sacrifice for sins. Thirdly, in verse 2 we read, He can have, com- he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. The third qualification of a high priest is that he's to be gentle and compassionate. He needs to be able to deal gently and be compassionately considerate toward those who are weak and wandering. One pastor perfectly puts it in this way. He writes, The high priest's hands must be matched by the high priest's heart. His internal and inward feelings are to be kept in line with his outward duties. He is to have a genuine sense of empathy that emerges from the fact of his own personal weakness. And since he himself knows himself to be a sinner, it saves him from being unduly bombastic with those who, just like him, are also sinners. Priests, specifically in this context, Aaronic priests or priests, Uh, from the line of Aaron, were to deal gently with sinful people because they themselves knew that they were in the same boat as their fellow men. They were to show compassion toward the weak in wandering, which if you notice, are the natural characteristics of fallen humanity. This to say that the writer of Hebrews is not talking about an act of disobedience or an unbelief that's directed, actively directed toward God here, but he's referring to sins that simply manifest themselves from the weakness of human fallenness. Ignorance and wandering, symptoms that naturally plague the man. And so again, the qualification here is that the high priest is to deal gently with those who he's ordained to represent. Why? Because he's surrounded by weakness. Now, the idea that's presented here is, again, profound. The idea that's being communicated here is that the high priest is to be someone who is clothed with weakness. Or if you have the NASB or ESV, it puts it as someone who is beset with weakness. But the word that's used here in the Greek can be more literally translated as to surround or to to put around or to wear, to put on. Meaning we can understand verse 2 to say that the qualified high priest is to be someone who's not only surrounded by sinners, but someone who clothes himself with the weaknesses of the people who he's been ordained to serve. In other words, the high priest wasn't some guy who distanced himself and stayed in his office and only came out once a week or once a year to give offerings and make sacrifices. But he was someone who lived amongst the people of God. He was someone who lived closely to the people of God. He was someone who lived in the midst of sinners. So much so that he would be able to, as it were, put upon himself and clothe himself with the weaknesses of the people he represented. Now friends, does this not remind you of someone 
Does this not remind you of our Savior? Does this not bring to your mind John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and what? That He dwelt among us? The third qualification of a high priest was that he was to be gentle and compassionate toward those he represented because he himself was also subject to weakness. And it's for this very reason, verse 3, that he was required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer up sacrifices for sin. Lastly, the final qualification that we find here is that the high priest is to be humble. We read here in verse 4, that no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. The high priest was never to be one who was a self-promoter. The very idea that the high priest was appointed and chosen by God meant by necessity that he had absolutely no right, no ground to take glory or honor to himself. This to say that the requirement of this office, appointed and divinely selected by God, the priest was not to be served by men, but was to serve all men in humility. He was not to receive glory, but to give all the glory to the one who, whom he was appointed by. And yet again, what we find here is a perfect picture of Christ, do we not? That it was He who came not to be served, but to serve. To humbly lay down His own life as a ransom for many. And that He sought not His own glory, John 8.50, but the glory of His Father. Though we don't have priests today, being that the office has been fully and satisfactorily fulfilled in the person and work of Christ, I believe that we would all do well and greatly benefit to quickly take note here of what the Lord is trying to teach us, especially for those of us, for those of you, who serve in any sort of capacity. Brothers and sisters, it's for us to remember and to know that in the language of 1 Peter 2, that as a holy priesthood of God, that we're to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, that we're to do so in the posture of humility as we seek to serve those around us and as we seek to glorify our Heavenly Father. Pillar Baptist Church, may we be a people who alongside the great George Whitfield, confess, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Beloved, may it never be said of any of us here that we take honor for ourselves. But may it be, may it be that we give honor always to God and to Him alone. In reviewing verses 1 through 4, we find that the qualifications of a high priest is first, human, second, appointed, third, compassionate, and fourth, humble. The office of a high priest was required to offer up gifts and sacrifices for sins on behalf of himself and for those whom he was appointed to represent. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing here in these first four verses is that he's setting the stage and building up that Old Testament backdrop to communicate one single point. And it's this, that it's Jesus Christ 
the Son of God who became the Son of Man, that it's to Him alone who meets and fulfills every qualification of a priest perfectly. But much more than that, that He's the true and better Aaron. That He's not just a high priest, but He's the great high priest of God who has fulfilled and has sufficiently satisfied that very office. That He, as the great high priest, forever lives to intercede for His people. Which we'll get to studying and unpack next week. But as we draw to a close, in studying all of these qualifications of a high priest, there's one simple application that I would like to end our time with. And it's this. If you want to know God, if you want a relationship with God, if you want to approach God, if you want to love God, if you want to worship God, then you are in need of the one who is qualified to be a high priest. You are in need of the one who shares your nature. One who is divinely appointed by God. One who is gentle. One who is humble. In other words, beloved, in the studying of this whole backdrop of the qualifications of a high priest, these four verses that we looked at tonight is simply declaring to you this one simple message. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. For those of you in here tonight who have yet to place your faith and trust in Him, oh friends, I assure you and simultaneously warn you that apart from Christ, you'll never be able to save yourself. It's a promise. We see it right here. Unbeliever, it's to this Christ, to this great high priest that you must go. It is to Him that you must cling. It's in Him and in His Word that you must trust. And it's solely to this Christ that you must go throw yourself upon Him. It is to this Christ that you must go through Him to find salvation and rest. Go to Him. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Follow Him. And it's only then it's only then that you'll be able to say with full confidence, and as we'll confess together in just a few moments, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. O oh Lord, we confess that the more we do, the worse we are. The more we know, the less we know. The more righteous we think ourselves to be, the more sinful we find ourselves to be. But thanks be to God that You have not left us to ourselves. That You have not left us to our own efforts nor to our own devices. But You have sent to us a mediator a representative, a great high priest in the person of your Son, Jesus. That it's to Him, our elder brother, that we look to. And it's to Him that we cling to. And it's to Him that we go through in that to give you all the glory. 
We pray all these things in the name of our dear Savior, Jesus, who stands even at this very moment as our great high priest. Amen.